Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and we're back from a slightly unscheduled break. So apologies for the two-week absence. But we're back with a focus on the British political scene. And my goodness, a lot has happened. And to guide us through that scene, I'm joined by Phil Webster, editor of the Times Redbox website and email, and also two of our political reporters, Laura Battelle and Sam Coates. Now, perhaps the most dramatic story that's happened since we last podcasted was one that you've been at the heart of sam coates about a week ago the times splashed and on opinion poll we haven't heard so much from opinion polls <laughs> since the general election suggesting that jeremy corbyn was on course to be the next labor leader and an increasing number of people are beginning to say this might happen what, what's your gut instinct well until last Tuesday at 10 o'clock, um, the Labour leadership race felt just a little bit too sleepy. It uh, hadn't really caught fire and uh, captured the imagination of, uh, of either the general public or even the kind of Labour membership. What our poll showed was that in the uh, first round of voting, Jeremy Corbyn was 17 points ahead, which even if you don't trust opinion polls, a huge amount after uh, the fact they got it wrong during the general election, it's the kind of margin that's very hard to argue with. Now, I think it's too early to say either whether that result will be replicated in early September when we get the results, or even whether or not a poll like this actually shifts opinion so that you get some change as a result. Maybe there'll be a bit more of a uh, anyone but Corbyn bandwagon, though, frankly, it doesn't really feel like the other three candidates are minded to work together on that. Um, there just do seem to be quite a lot of straws in the wind suggesting he's doing quite well. Things like constituency party nominations, uh, like this poll, like the general view of the sort of reports I get of people coming out of Labour selection meetings um, saying that he's done very well. And I think the, the thing that should concern Labour is the kind of big point here. And it's the reason why Jeremy Corbyn's picking up so so much support. And I think it's down to two things. First of all, I think because as much as Labour people might hate to say this and hate to acknowledge it, Jeremy Corbyn is an effective communicator. Um, for a party that has been bullied by machine politics for years and years, used to kind of uh, sort of slightly anodyne sound bites. And, he's, he's a breath and, and of fresh he's air. He's a breath of fresh air. He does, he, just, he, does, he, does, he does speak clearly. And then the second reason that it feels to me there is definitely something underway here, something, the sort of growing momentum, is because whisper it quietly, but really, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham and Liz Kendall aren't really that exciting. I mean, I've... It's an extraordinary observation to well, make. Well, if you want to make the reverse, I'll see you for liable. Um, 
honestly, I can't really tell the difference between Andy Burnham and, and Yvette Cooper. Um, uh, there's a little bit of difference on the economy. On Actually, to be honest, uh, Andy Burnham is a bit to the right of Yvette Cooper on uh, uh, on the narrow issue of, um, of of spending in 2007. But but broadly speaking, their their pitches are, 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 are in outline are the same. Liz Kendall is a bit different, but underperforms when she's in front of the uh, cameras and in front of uh, audiences and is getting quite poor reports back and scaring off quite a lot of mainstream Labour voters because of her ultra Blairite circa 2006 views. So all of those things put together means that it feels like there is something going on here for Corbyn. How far it goes, we wait what, to see. What, Phil Webster, can be done to stop Jeremy Corbyn, assuming that that is what a lot of uh, people in the uh, Labour Party who are interested in winning the next election would would like to do. We had Tony Blair intervening last week, which I imagine will be a mixed uh, blessing in that campaign, who may even encourage a few more people to uh, be determined to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. But could we see an Ed Miliband or Gordon Brown or Neil Kinnock intervention? Are these the sort of people that might sway the people sympathetic to the Islington left winger? I think it's very unlikely that Ed Miliband would intervene to stop Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I've got an admission. Do you think uh, he might? You think he might actually quite like the idea of I Jeremy doubt if Corbyn? He liked, I, I, I doubt if he wanted to leave the party to Corbyn. But uh, knowing Miliband, I think it's very unlikely that he would intervene. Uh, I've got a bit of an admission. I'm around about the same age as Corbyn, but I know the other three candidates far better. And the reason for that is when I covered the Labour beat back in the late seventies and eighties. Even then, Corbyn was out of date, and his ideas were out of date, and I didn't really bother to get to know him too much. I never th- thought I'd see the day when his his views of the world would would um, would come through in the Labour Party. Uh, personally, uh, I don't think he's going to win, but I don't really have any evidence to back that up. I think uh, I think the poll could have the effect of repelling something that was was going to happen. Uh, rather similar to the Scottish referendum poll, that one poll that said, yes, we're ahead, galvanised the no campaign. There's no sign of uh, the Labour members being galvanised in any public way at the moment. They seem to be enjoying the anxiety they're heaping upon upon the party leadership at this time. But whether... It will encourage them. Uh, bear in mind that no, no vote is cast until August the 14th. Mm. Uh, and whether it will encourage them to, to go for someone else when the time comes, who knows? I do know that the, both the uh, Cooper and Kendall camps fear that the impact of the rise of Corbyn will be to help Burnham. And in the end... Uh, they fear that uh, the members might go for Burnham as the next best thing. Mm. So that's that's an interesting dynamic in in it all. But the truth is, you're, 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 not, you're not you're nodding again about that, Laura. I just I think one of the most sort of fascinating, thrilling things about this contest is that we really don't know who the Labour members are. Mm-hmm. At the time of the election in May, there were 200,000 people who were members of the Labour Party and because of reforms that Ed Miliband introduced after this big scandal about Falkirk vote-rigging mm-hmm. trade unions, they've opened up the membership and so what you've got now is trade unions signing up some of their members as affiliate supporters of the Labour Party. You've got people being given the opportunity to register for a small amount as supporters rather than full members of the Labour pounds. Party. And now the numbers that the Labour 
insiders say they're expecting the number of people eligible to vote to be about 320,000. So that's 120,000 extra people since mm. May. A few Tories um, for Corbyn, possibly. Possibly some uh, people with <laughs> less than benign intentions. Um, and we just don't know who they are. Anything could happen. Add to that the fact that um, there's this, this complex system of voting that includes second, third, fourth preferences, and mm. we just don't know what's going to happen. Although the, the, the Times YouGov opinion poll did suggest that the people who had joined since the election are more Corbyn-friendly than those who were pre-2010. Sam? Yeah. Um, that's that's yeah. true. I think the big problem for the Burnham and Cooper camps, uh, and to a certain extent the Kendall camp, although she looks pretty clearly like she's not going to win, is trying to convince the Labour electorate, selectorate, um, of the question they're trying to answer. What I mean by that is that overwhelmingly um, our poll suggested that the Labour members are not really seeing themselves as voting for the next potential Prime Minister. They want the head of a pressure group. They want somebody who can take on the Tories, somebody who shares their values, but not necessarily somebody who's going to take the party back to the brink of power. And really the best chance for Andy Burnham or Yvette Cooper to, uh, to, to edge ahead of Jeremy Corbyn is if they convince the party that um, actually, you do need a potential prime minister in that role, mm. which Jeremy Corbyn clearly isn't. Now, they've only got two weeks to convince the Labour membership of this fact. They haven't done it to date. That's a hell of a job to do in a short space of time. That's one of the reasons why I'm a little less optimistic uh, than Phil that uh, uh, that one of the mainstream candidates, rather than somebody who will take the party away from a kind of uh, from from the mainstream of politics and slightly steer it towards irrelevance will get in. Because it, rather than uh, Phil Webster, rather than doing as Sam advises, trying to look the Prime Minister in waiting, the day we are recording Tuesday, you have Andy Burnham giving a speech, I think, recapturing the spirit of 1945, rather than going in the, perhaps the prime ministerial direction seems to be going in the more sort of radical yes, direction to appease these um, grassroots. Yes, absolutely. In that speech, he's, he's clearly uh, going for what he now sees the party membership to be, uh, not the voters. If Corbyn is elected, I don't think he'll last for long, but he clearly will, uh, will need to be given long enough to fail. And I think that's the view of some it's a worst-case scenario for, for people in the Labour leadership at the moment. But the one consolation they have is that they feel that if he did win, uh, the, the, the left's bluff would be called. Mm. And finally, the arguments they've been pushing for decades would be defeated and there'd be another leadership contest within a year or so. Mm. There is talk of a, an emergency PLP being called to to chuck him out straight away if he wins, but that's pretty pointless because the members well, that would... That would split the Labour Party. Well, and the members would yeah. revolt against that yeah. straight away and they would say, well, no, let him stand again or let another from the left stand again. You, uh, but uh, he... he he would have to be given a chance to fail. Yeah. Do you agree, Laura Patel, that in a way almost you, the Labour Party, for the sake of its unity, needs Corbyn to win? Uh, Dan Hodges um, in the Daily Telegraph is saying that the left need this sort of moment to show that it can't, it can't work. The worst scenario could actually be Corbyn losing, um, but not by much. Mm, and representing this alternative future, constantly undermining perhaps a mainstream leader who is elected, tugging them to the left making the Labour Party unelectable. Maybe they need a year of Corbyn and then get rid of him as leader. Yeah, and I think perversely, the worst case scenario for the Conservative Party could be a Jeremy Corbyn victory followed by a coup. He could be replaced by some smart, up-and-coming hotshot. Um, 
the the question I would ask is, will the Labour Party actually be willing to execute that coup? Because we saw before Christmas there was a sort of minor move to to get rid of Ed Miliband that flopped. Um, we know that there were failed attempts to get rid of Gordon Brown before the 2010 election. And there's all this talk of sharpening knives, but they the party hasn't proved <laughs> that willing right. to actually do it in but the, the past. The, the, the big difference, of course, this time is that overwhelming percentage of the parliamentary Labour Party did not want Jeremy Corbyn. We have now all these people who nominated him regretting oh, having done so. The overwhelming majority of the parliamentary party didn't want Ed Miliband for large parts of the last parliament. Didn't make the blindest bit of difference. This is a different order of uh, disagreement though, isn't it, Sam? It, it, it is a different order of disagreement, but the last 10 years of Labour history have shown that no Labour MP wants to jump first when it comes to a um, to an to an execution, even if the party is quite maybe clearly they're finally going, learning going down the lessons to, to, of history. To, you say that, we have no evidence. No, they've never done it, but I think this would be the first. Good. Well, let's move on to the Conservatives, um, who are probably enjoying the Jeremy Corbyn saga a little bit uh, too much. But can I start with you, Laura Patel? I'm quite interested in what the Conservative government has done sort of since the election and, you know, quite surprised by things that they've done. You know, they wouldn't commit to 2% defence spending before the election. Uh, They have now done so. They've introduced a living wage. We've had a fascinating uh, speech on prison reform by Michael Gove. Uh, Today, Tuesday, for those who are listening to the podcast later in the week, we have a crackdown on foreign ownership of homes in in Britain. Um, It seems to me to be a much more interesting Tory government, potentially a more one-nation Tory government than the party's manifesto suggested it might have been. Well, they've certainly taken to heart this idea that Tony Blair talked about in his autobiography, that he wished he'd done more at the start, very quickly, when he had a strong mandate. They've been running around doing billions of things and deliberately keeping their ministers off the airwave just to allow the Labour turmoil to well, collapsing on itself. Tory MPs would definitely agree with you. They're kind of cock-a-hoop at the moment. On cloud nine, they've got Labour chaos, they've got this sense that they've had a triumphant budget the other week. I would strike perhaps a slightly more cautious note, uh, saying that, you know, that the this is a party that hasn't really got any serious opposition at the moment. I think there are a lot of problems coming down the track for it. We know that the EU referendum is going to be a hugely divisive issue that could potentially tear the Tory party mm. um, into. Also, I mean, the you mentioned the living wage that was set out in the budget, but I've heard, interestingly, kind of some Tory MPs saying to me recently that they're quite anxious about some of the impact of the welfare cuts. We know that even though there's been this promise to, to implement a higher minimum wage, that some of the removal of tax credits is going to hit a lot of families quite hard and you hear Tory MPs saying our big pitch at the election was to be the Workers' Party. We know that um, some of the welfare cuts that happened in the last Parliament haven't hit my constituents that hard but I fear that these ones will so I guess I'd strike a note of caution saying that they've got a kind of open goal at the moment but a few years down the line we don't know how things might look. Things might be quite a lot tougher or harder from the point of view of the Tory party. So some estimates, um, Phil, say that the welfare cuts, the tax credit changes will... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mean hundreds of pounds of losses for some people, perhaps over a thousand for some people. We're talking about actually potentially about three million families. Could this be a crisis moment for the government within a year or two? It's something that could come back and hit them uh, later when the impact is seen. I mean, the IFS have given the figures, but. Laura's right. I mean, the, the government's getting a completely clear run at the moment. Uh, Osborne brings forward a bill containing 12 billion of welfare cuts, and the story is the Labour Party. It, it's it's the, the whole political scene is fairly crazy at the moment. On what the Tories have done since the election, you've got to remember that they didn't expect to win. And even if they'd wanted, they wouldn't have put the defence... Uh, pledge in the manifesto. They wouldn't have trust the li- trusted the Liberals not to claim credit for the living wage announcement. But there is undoubtedly a feeling that the one nationism that was always part of Cameron and Osborne is reasserting itself. And you see Gove going that way. So Gove talking about prisoners being able to earn their release, mm. talking about uh, what a waste of time it is for prisoners to be sitting in their cells. Uh, or lying in their cells watching watching daytime TV they should be doing more to get out. This is more the old Tory spirit of paternalism coming out. Gove, who's a good reader of the political mood at any time, is going on that strand at the moment. That's where the, the centre of gravity appears to have moved at the moment in the Tory party, but let's see how it goes when we come on to your next subject. <laughs> Sam, where, where do you stand in this debate of the Tories are in a good place because they're perhaps being more one nation but or or do you worry for the Tories sake more that these welfare cuts are going to going to hurt and some react some some political reality is going to bring them back to gravity down to earth quite soon Um, I mean there's no doubt they're tacking to the centre and emphasising one nation credentials at the moment sort of but 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 the story of the Cameron and Osborne uh, leadership of the Conservative Party over the last decade has been one of phases. Yes. Been, there was a modernising phase, the hugger hoodie phase, and then there was a uh, sort of shift to the right, and then there was a fiscal orthodoxy phase. What we've learned is that we can do these phases for eighteen months, and then and then they kind of change the topic. And um, some of the announcements that they're making, you mentioned the foreign ownership announcement today really what we've had is a headline uh, and an aspiration but it's not at all clear how far they're going to go really on that so they've got they've sort of got themselves in the right place in terms of the media but we are waiting to see yet whether they deliver 
um, an obligation on companies that buy up foreign uh, that buy up UK land to reveal who the ultimate owner of that company is. It's entirely unclear to me how that happens in practice, or the fact that they have introduced a living wage, but as Laura says, have taken a thousand pounds out of um, the pay packets out of some of the uh, lowest earning households in the country. I think that there's a sort of admirable centre ground aspiration. But I'm not saying it won't be delivered, but I'm saying we wait to see whether or not um, the rhetoric translates into into something that is genuinely one nation or whether um, they've done the kind of superficial politics incredibly smartly. But um, there's an awful uh, awful lot left to do sort of just beneath the surface. So I think that's that's kind of one of the big dangers. And then this is a parliament where uh, you're going to have the EU renegotiation, which will be tough, and then the um, referendum, which will be tougher, dividing the, 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 um, the party in ways that we know not, but I'm fairly certain that the in-campaign will have a much rockier ride than most people suspect at the moment. It seems to be committing every mistake uh, that it is possible to commit um, uh, right now, uh, branding itself for Europe in some cases um, Mm. uh, only this week. Um, And then the moment that the referendum campaign's out the way, we're into a leadership contest. One of the curiosities of all this talk this week of an early referendum is that the moment it's over, that's David Cameron pretty much wrapped up and done. So uh, is he really trying to call time on his own premiership? Well, you've, you've neatly uh, brought us to the, the third question I wanted to, to ask. And, Phil, start with you on this one. That, that, that point that Sam makes, that once the referendum is held, David Cameron's days are numbered, that sort of suggests that the story that we had at the weekend that you've covered on Red Box at the referendum might be sort of June next year, June 2016, might be the wrong time to hold it what's what's your assessment well, when, I, when i read uh, sam's excellent story in the paper yesterday morning uh, suggesting that osborne was pushing for a quick finish to these negotiations with a possible referendum next year i thought i wondered what did he mean by that <laughs> it would certainly suit george the the master strategist particularly when it comes to his own future to get this out of the way while the government's popularity and his own popularity is is riding high. I wonder whether David Cameron goes along with um, what George uh, let it be known that he wants to see and whether whether Cameron even believes it's possible to get to that point by next year. Um, If they were to go for an early referendum and win it, which one supposes they would, the right would come down hard on Cameron for having conned the electorate in their eyes. Mm. But Osborne, having negotiated the deal that secured a yes vote in the referendum, would still be riding high and in a perfect position to take over. So... I think that was interesting. I don't know if there was if there we've had no big splits between chancellor and prime minister and I'm not suggesting there is here but there there seems to me the to be the possibility and then of course we have the third big figure in the background will at any point in the next 12 months Boris firmly nail his colors to the new campaign and that will change he's going to be spending all his book all his time writing his book on shakespeare Shakespeare, but you know he writes quickly (laughs) um and uh that's the other interesting thing to keep an eye out for as we go into this boris has had a bad few weeks he's fallen down the leadership uh ladder for the time being Uh, he he does desperate things at times Will one of those desperate things be nailing his colours to the no mast? Mm. It would certainly get himself noticed, but would it get would it get him elected by the yeah. Tory party? Do, do you agree with that assessment from Phil Laura that actually 
if George Osborne is seen as the guy who negotiates the settlement for Britain staying in the EU, that that will actually enhance his chances of becoming Tory leader? Or will it actually turn him into something of a, dis a divisive figure? Because at the moment, you know, his record on the economy is something that unites the Conservative Party, but it is something of a risk for him to have put him at the heart, himself at the heart of the EU story as well. Absolutely. I mean, we know that the Tory parliamentary party divides um, both ways. You know, there will be some of them who are, um, there is a small number who are very pro-European. There, there are a number who are very anti and then there are a number of fence-sitters in the middle. I guess I think George Osborne didn't really have much choice in a bit in the way that he he threw his lot in with David Cameron in the general election. The two of them are very much the architects of the current Conservative Party mm. and its strategy. Uh, but he, he could have supported David Cameron's renegotiation strategy as chance though. He didn't necessarily need to be the guy shooting off to Paris and other European capitals to help make it happen. I guess he thinks that um, that, that, that side is going to win and he, mm. we know that he wants to be on the winning side. Um, his pitch is going to be as a sort of continuity candidate after Cameron. I'm sure he will set out his stall as being different mm. but he can't disown the legacy of the kind of Cameron leadership. I mean as Phil says one of the fascinating things about those two has been the, the relatively few chinks that we've seen between them compared to Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. It's well, it's like a walk in the park, their relationship mm. in the public sense. But you do wonder what Cameron's unexpected declaration that he was going to stand down before 2020 will mean in the coming years, because obviously their interests are, are, are not aligned now in this case. Will Cameron feel on a high if he wins the European referendum? He feels it's all going smoothly. Will he prove reluctant to walk out the door and will Osborne be forced to try and push him? Mm. That's something that we'll definitely all be watching. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, we, we haven't mentioned the Liberal Democrats. Um, they have a new leader. <laughs> because they're less, they're you're wearing a golden tie today for those who uh, obviously can't see what you're wearing and that will be the last golden tie I wear this year in recognition of their limited impact of, on um, look they have less MPs than the DUP and way less influence um, I think we've got to relook at the parties that we cover in depth and I'm not certain that we need to really focus much resources on the Liberal Democrats. Let me give you one example. There is currently a split in the middle of the Liberal Democrat Party, from what I can tell. That Tim Farron, newly elected leader, is trying to appoint his shadow cabinet out of his seven other MPs, and quite a lot of them don't want to join. It's said that neither Norman Lamb nor Nick Clegg actually want to take part. Who can blame them? Um, and currently, therefore, he's having difficulty working out what his top team is. But do I care? No. Um, well, that's absolutely clear, I think, from uh, Sam, who's not sitting on the fence on, on that one. Um, the SNP, um, Phil Webster, you've enjoyed the impact of this uh, 50, group of 56 uh, I, I have, entering I think, Parliament. Uh, they're, they're a much bigger, much bigger grouping, and uh, I think, as we've said before here, they can only go one way at this point, uh, owning virtually every seat in Scotland, they can only go down. And in my view, they've had their high point. And there are signs of trouble there. Um, I, I, whether it was coincidence that Alex Salmond came out with his uh, stuff about the inevitability of a second referendum on Sunday while Nicola Sturgeon was out of the country, who knows? Uh, but from... Uh, from abroad, she was very quick to make it absolutely plain yesterday, as she said at our CEO summit the other day, that absolutely no decision 
on whether this referendum will would go into the 2016 manifesto or whether it will even go into the one after that. So there is there are signs of trouble ahead in that party, but of course they're having an impact. They are having a big impact on parliamentary events. The, the government is having to take far more notice of them than they are of the Lib Dems at the moment. Mm. They're a big block. They can help the other parties defeat the government at any point. And potentially dragging Labour to the left, the, Sam. The biggest impact of uh, the SNP is on Labour. There are a lot of soft-left people in Labour who hate to be shouted at as a traitor by the SNP benches, but that's just what's happening. We saw it on welfare. We'll see it again. It's going to make the job of whoever becomes Labour leader um, much harder because it will be so much more difficult to tack to the centre um, with that um, uh, blaring in their ear the entire time. Uh, Lib Dems have eight MPs, uh, Laura. UKIP has one. Yes, MP. one lonely MP. But quite big financial problems we Major hear. Financial Do we, is that going to make their re-emergence, possible re-emergence, even harder? Yeah, they've definitely sort of um, fizzled out slightly, shall we say, since their election result and then their sort of rather fun, explosive row that ensued after that. They have financial problems. They are without an office at the moment and uh, they haven't even paid all of their staff. Some of their donors have been rather more attracted and excited by the prospect of supporting the EU referendum campaign than this party that only got one seat at the election. I don't think, I think it's too early to um, predict the death of UKIP because the EU referendum is obviously going to provide an opportunity for them. Um, the, the difficult question for them is how they find a role because a lot of the Conservatives um, in the Eurosceptic movement don't want them to be part of it. They blame, uh, they accuse Nigel Farage of being toxic and they think they've got to reach out to a much wider people group of people than the 14% or so who voted for UKIP at the general election. UKIP, by contrast, hope that they can use the referendum a bit like the SNP did with the Scottish referendum and use it to swell support for them, particularly really if the referendum is lost in, from mm. their point of view. So they're sort of licking their wounds a bit on the side, regrouping, trying to find some money in an office, but I don't think they've gone away forever just yet. Do you think, put you on the spot, that uh, Douglas Carswell will still be a UKIP MP at the end of this parliament or will he be sitting as an independent? I do actually think he'll still be a UKIP MP. I think the idea that he would quit is a bit overblown. Apart from anything else, if he quit UKIP, he'd have to, by his own precedent, hold another by-election. I think the people of Clacton yes, deserve might, better than that. There might, and, there uh, might do be you think Farage will go for a by-election if one comes on? Uh, I'm sure he won't be able to resist. The man can't help himself. <laughs> well, that's a good note to end. Laura Patel, Phil Webster, Sam Coates, who will, if any Liberal Democrats have heard this podcast, not be flavour of the month with them. <laughs> thank you all very much. And uh, thank you to Dave Maguire, my producer, for putting this together, and to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 